Uh, so, Lord, we, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for this year, Lord. Thank you for this new year, uh, these different marks uh, along our life, God, where we can sit back and look at our lives, Lord, uh, look back at your faithfulness, Lord, and your provision, Lord, how you've cared for us and you've seen us through this past year, Lord. And uh, Lord, pray that each of us, that you'd give us eyes to see, Lord, help us to see through our deceptive and wicked heart, Lord, just truly where we are at with you this morning, Lord. Pray that you'd speak to us, Lord, and we intercede for our friends and family. We intercede for Calvary Chapel Orlando, Lord, all the heartbreak going on there. We continue to pray for Lester and Alejandra, Lord, for Joe and Renee, for uh, little Noah and the Alvarez family, Lord. And uh, Lord, we, we pray and we thank you for those who had a, a great Christmas and a great New Year's, for those who are still on vacation, Lord. Uh, thank you for this life and the many blessings that come in it, Lord. And just strengthen us, Lord, to continue to grow in maturity with you, a love for you, and a love for our brothers and sisters, and for all the image bearers out there, God. So we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So the book of Matthew, uh, we're diving in here. A couple weeks back, we did an overview of the whole book of Matthew. So if you want to check out that overview or you forgot about that teaching like I did, uh, you can just go ahead and go a couple weeks back and you'll find it there online. We'll look at a couple things to refresh ourselves. So first thing is the theme of the book of Matthew is that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of the universe. Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one. He's the one that is sent by God to save his people from their sins. So that's really the theme of the book of Matthew. We borrowed the outline from Dr. J. Vernon McGee. It's a six Point outline all begin with a P letter word, and the first one is the person of the king. That's in chapters 1 and 2. This morning, our goal is to get through verses 1 through 17. We'll look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then God willing, next Sunday, we'll go from verse 18 through chapter 2, and we'll look at Jesus as a, as a child, as a baby, and his upbringing. The preparation of the king is in chapters chapter 3. Through chapter 4, verse 16, the propaganda of the king, that's in chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 9, verse 35. Fourth point in the outline is the program of the king, and that's in chapter 9, verse 36, through chapter 16, verse 20. Fifth point of the outline is the passion of the king, that's in chapter 16, verse 21. Through chapter 27, verse 66. And finally, it's the power of the king. And we find that in chapter 28. So we have the person of the king, the preparation of the king, proper propaganda of the king, program of the king, passion of the king, and the power of the king. And Jesus' reason for coming into this earth, it's found there in verse 21 of chapter 1. He's telling, the angel's telling Joseph that Mary will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And again, it's just a great reminder to us, Jesus did not come to help us help ourselves, right? 
Jesus isn't some type of self-help guru where we get the book and now we apply it to our lives and we just work on these outward actions throughout this January 1st and 2023, new year, new me, and right? Jesus is going to make me be the best me possible. That's not the point of Jesus coming to this earth. He came to this earth to save us from our sins. Always important to keep that in the forefront of our minds and what Jesus has for us. It's not health and wealth. It's not the new Lamborghini or the yacht or the house. It's none of those things. It's to save us from our sins. Now, biblically, if we live biblical lives, if we follow God's word, follow Proverbs, follow the Gospels, and we live a life according to God's word, it's going to increase life and that abundantly in our lives. Whereas if we're living an unbiblical life, it's going to lead to more death, more damage, and more pain. When we went over the book of Matthew, we looked at the Gospels for a little bit. And the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, highlights what Jesus said. Matthew, the tax collector, he's constantly writing down everything that Jesus said. He's constantly writing down and grouping together different sermons from Jesus Christ. So Matthew highlights what Jesus said. Mark highlights what Jesus did. Luke highlights what Jesus felt, and John highlights who Jesus was. So important to go through the different Gospels, different angles, different lenses for us to see the person and the power of Jesus Christ. It's also important for us to gather our view of who Jesus was and is and is to come from the Word of God And to gather what Jesus' 33 years of life looked like here on earth only from the Gospels. Sometimes we blend together what we read in our Bibles compared to the stories our parents told us, compared to the cartoons, compared to VeggieTales, compared to TV shows. And we grab all of this mix and we say, didn't Jesus do X, Y, or Z? And we always should go back to the Gospels. And if it doesn't say Jesus did that, we should drop it all together. I remember growing up, there was a new TV show about Jesus. And they had Jesus kind of in elementary school. And I think he was trying to impress his friend. So he's playing there with his Play-Doh. He makes a little bird and he throws it in the air and it becomes a dove and it flies away, right? I don't think Jesus was trying to impress the different kids on the playground uh, back in the day. So we got to be careful. Even today, there's a great TV show called The Chosen. It's a great TV show. Great artist and what he sees within Scripture, maybe a little bit outside of Scripture. It's great. It's great for us. It's probably better than most of the things out there on television, right? If you're watching Cops or Law and Order, what's going to be more beneficial to my spiritual life? Bad boys, bad boys, what you're going to do? Or right, Jesus and what his life is about. However, if it ever becomes heresy, then we should probably drop it altogether. But our view of Jesus should come from Scripture. It's also important that we know Jesus is not a fictional character that can be rehashed to fit our cultural desires or needs or wants. We need to make sure that the Jesus we believe, the Jesus we're worshiping, the Jesus we're looking to save us from our sins and from hell itself is the actual Jesus within Scripture. The author of the book of Matthew is none other than Matthew. That's likely not his birth name. His birth name was Levi. Perhaps this is the name Jesus gives him, Matthew, which means gift from God. So, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. 
starts off telling us the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the book of Matthew is a great bridge from the Old Testament and the Jewish customs, the Jewish beliefs, the Jewish traditions, the Jewish culture, and bridging it into the New Testament, showing us that Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy and Jewish law. He is the Messiah itself. He's the chosen one. He is the anointed one. Now, for most of us, if we're watching a TV show or a movie, the first five minutes are so important to either grab our attention or we fall asleep, right? Or the first five minutes, they grab our attention or we change the channel. Maybe a book you're reading. That first chapter, if it feels to grab your attention, you're probably not going to finish reading it. So as we come to the Gospel of Matthew, we think a genealogy? This is how you're going to start? right? Is this how you're going to work things out? And for us in our Western culture, we find no joy in going through a genealogy. However, for Jewish culture, it would bring a lot of excitement to a Jewish reader finding how Jesus Christ's genealogy is in fact fulfillment of the Jewish prophecy and the genealogy of the Messiah himself. Jesus' name, it wasn't a, a name that Mary or Joseph grew up saying, ah, when we have our firstborn son, I'm going to name him after that person in the TV show or the novella. I'm going to have our firstborn son named Jesus. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verse 30, it's an angel that first appears to Mary and tells Mary, Do not be afraid. In Luke chapter 1, verse 30, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So Mary is foretold even before conception that she's going to have a son and that she needs to name him Jesus. Joseph is also told by an angel in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, same chapter here, that Mary, his betrothed, she's going to bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus, it's the same as the Hebrew name where we get Joshua from. And that name Jesus literally means salvation of Jehovah or salvation of Yahweh. How Jesus, he's the salvation of God himself to save us from our sins. Now, Jesus Christ is not first name Jesus, last name Christ. In our prayers, if we're trying to get extra credit with Jesus, we don't say, Dear Mr. Christ, I please pray, right? May you help me do X, Y, or Z. No, that, that's not his last name. It's his title. Perhaps your Bible version puts verse 1 saying, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The word Christ is taken from the Greek word Christos, which is a translation from the Hebrew word Messiah. And Christos means the anointed one or the chosen one. And throughout the Old Testament, things that were anointed with oil were meant for a holy separate and specific service for God. The things that were anointed, it was not just commonly used things. The priest wouldn't grab the lampstand and say, oh, the lights are out of my house. Let me just grab this lampstand and take it home. It'll look great in my living room, right? That was something holy and anointed for God. 
If the priest's barbecue was broken at home, he wouldn't just grab the altar and say, wow, look at how much meat I could fit on this thing, right? I'm going to borrow it for a week and I'll bring it back. No, that was something holy and separate made specifically for the service of God. Throughout Exodus and Leviticus, we see priests being anointed for the service of God. In Leviticus chapter 8, verse 12, it tells us that Moses poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head, and he anointed him to consecrate him. So we have Aaron, we have the high priest, we have the Levites. They were all anointed. Even the unleavened bread, the unleavened cakes, the unleavened wafers used in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the tabernacle of meeting, they were also anointed. Basically, any tent, any piece of furniture, any article of clothing, any priest, and most of the sacrifice were anointed with oil, showing that they were separate and specific for God and for his purposes. Not only were Old Testament priests anointed, but also the prophets. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16, you see Elijah not only anointing the next king of Israel, Jehu, but he also anoints Elisha to be the next prophet in his place. So you have priests, you have prophets, and then in 1 Samuel chapter 10, the first king of Israel ever, King Saul, he was anointed. Samuel the prophet, he takes a flask of oil and he pours it on Saul's head, kisses him and says, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? David would famously be anointed in secrecy in 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 13 in front of his own brothers in front of his own father in his home by the prophet Samuel, he would take the horn of oil and he anointed David in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Jesus Christ, it's just borrowing from this Old Testament idea of being anointed. And what's so sweet and so special is the people that anoint Jesus Christ is not the high priest, it's not a prophet, it's not a king. The two people that we find anointing Jesus in the Gospels, the first one is the woman with the alabaster flask. She anoints the feet of Jesus Christ with the substance that was most precious to her. The second woman, right, we have Mary that anoints the feet of Jesus with her tears, washing him with her own hair. And how Jesus, he is the anointed one. He is the chosen one that is separated from the beginning of time to save us from our sins. It's interesting how Matthew is showing how Jesus is from the lineage of David through his stepfather, Joseph. If you wanted to see Jesus' lineage through Mary, you'd have to go to Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 28. And the word for father in the Hebrew is the word Abba. That's the word Abba. If you go to Israel and there's a bunch of little kids and they're crying out to their father, to their daddy, you'll hear them say Abba, Abba, Abba. And they'll cry out to their dads there. If you would, we could turn quickly to Mark chapter 14. A couple pages to the right. And here we see an interaction between Jesus and between God the Father. Mark chapter 14.
verse 36. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Here he cries out to God and he says, Abba, Father, all these things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it tells us, You did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It's because of the work of Jesus Christ that now we can cry out to the creator of heaven and earth and call him Abba, call him Father. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 tells us, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So this is interesting because the word Abba you would use for your actual father, right, one generation up. But it's the same word that would be used for your grandfather or your great-grandfather. You would use it for the founder of your home, of your lives, of your ancestor, or even of your first ancestor. That's why many of us know the song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, right? Why is Abraham our actual dad, right? Do you write a Father's Day card? Thank you, Father Abraham. You're so great. You're the best. Here's a tie, right? You don't do things like that. It's talking about our first ancestor within the Jewish faith and then connected to our Christianity. That's why in verse 1 of Matthew 1, it says, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, right? The father, David, father, Abraham, being the top of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Son of David shows how Jesus is fulfilling the promises of the kingdom of David. And son of Abraham shows how Jesus is fulfilling the promises of the covenant and the kingdom there of Abraham. David wanted to build God a house. He desired, he looked at his palace and he saw that God was still living in a tent, right? Living in a tent. And he wanted to build God a house. So he calls Samuel into the palace, and he says, Samuel, I want to build God a house. And Samuel, like any other pastor in his right mind, says, of course, go for it. You want to build a new church? Go for it. Do it. Let's do this, David. As Samuel's leaving the palace, God tells Samuel, who told you to say yes to David? Who told you to say that? Shouldn't assume things, Samuel. He tells him, Samuel, David cannot build me a house because David is a man of much bloodshed. However, because he saw David and his heart to bless God and build him a house, God says, David, I'm going to build you a house, and I have a special promise for you. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, we see this promise, and it says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Again, because of the heart of David, God blesses him and honors him and gives him promises. A little bit of a side note here. Perhaps God's been stirring in your heart this year to give more to God. It's not your spouse, it's not someone elbowing you, it's not someone pressuring you to do more for God. But within your own heart, your own spirit, you have a sense, God, I want to give you more. Know that you can never outgive God. 
You'll never outgive the Lord. David here, he wants to bless God and he wants to, wants to give God so much. And God says, thanks, David, but now let me give you more blessings. Let me do something special for you. So perhaps God is stirring in your heart to do more for God or give more to God. I encourage you, put God to the test. Also in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, the angel Gabriel tells Mary, speaking of Jesus, that he's going to be great. He will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. For Abraham, his promise is found in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham taking a great step of faith, honoring God and taking a step of faith, obeying God. Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 says, The Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham, he takes this great step of faith. And if he's obedient to God, God says, hey, I'm going to bless you for your obedience. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, another promise to Abraham. He tells him, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So again, family, there's much blessing in obeying God and wanting to give to God. There's so much blessing there. Now, back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew starts off with this genealogy, and maybe for some of us here this morning, we're saying, Zach, January 1st, you're going through a genealogy, right? Are you really thinking about what's best here for everybody? Everybody's going to leave church after the first Sunday, right? But for the Jewish audience, again, he's proving how Jesus is the Messiah. He's the chosen one. It's also amazing because after 70 A.D. and the destruction of Jerusalem, it was nearly impossible to prove someone's Jewish lineage and heritage. So here Matthew is able to give all the Jewish people the lineage and the heritage of Jesus Christ, and no one could come and say it's a lie or he's not the Messiah or he's not the chosen one. Matthew, this author, was gifted with being able to follow such details. William Barclay says, as a former tax collector, Matthew was qualified to write an account of Jesus' life and teachings. A tax collector of that day must know Greek and be literate and a well-organized man. Something that Matthew was the recorder among the disciples and took notes of Jesus' teachings. We might say that when Matthew followed Jesus, he left everything behind except for his pen and paper. Matthew nobly used his literary skills to become the first man ever to compile an account of the teaching of Jesus. Maybe you or someone you know gets excited about Microsoft Excel, right? Maybe someone here, you have a Microsoft Excel sheet for everything. Perhaps Matthew is one of these types of people. So let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Hopefully you could have some grace for me as I read through these names. Imagine having to read through all these names in front of a large group of people. And uh, hopefully you give me some grace here. So, verse 2 says, Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. 
Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat begot Joram. Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. And Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Amon. Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah. And his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel begot Abiud, and Abiud begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Akim. Akim begot Eliad, Eliad begot Eliezer, Eliezer begot Matan, and Matan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now, this isn't the complete family tree of the Hebrew people or even of Jesus. Here, Matthew, he gets three groups of 14, perhaps making it simpler for the Jewish readers to understand and follow the lineage of Jesus Christ. Now, looking at this lineage, there's not many big wigs or heavy hitters, right? There's, besides Abraham and David, this list isn't too spectacular. And if you're a new believer, even less so. I don't know how many of us, you got into the whole finding out your ancestry, right? And you send your DNA to find out your ancestry, and then you find out there's no one important in your lineage, right? You're not the son of George Washington or Alexander the Great. You're just a bunch of Joe Schmoes within your family. And here this speaks to the humility of Jesus Christ and the love he has for us, willing to identify with the lowly, And for those who aren't impressive, according to our standards. You see, Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 tells us, But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. The last two weeks we've seen the scenario and the season and the way in which Jesus was born into this world. And for many outside eyes walking around Bethlehem that night, There wasn't anything too spectacular. A man and a woman in an alleyway or in a barn or in a cave giving birth to a kid, none of their families there. And here we see the humility of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon says, with one or two exceptions, these are the names of persons of little or no note. The later ones were persons altogether obscure and insignificant. Our Lord was a root out of dry ground, a shoot from the withered stem of Jesse. He set small store by earthly greatness. 
Again, the humility of Jesus Christ. Not only was he willing to humble himself to a lower life form, but then within that lower life form, he puts himself in the place and the position of the lowest of the low in that life form. He didn't come through the lineage of the greatest men and women ever within the planet. He comes within the lineage, as we're going to see in a moment, of a lot of sinners and kind of losers, if we're honest here. Imagine willing to submit your own life to becoming an ant because you love ants so much. And you don't hang out with the queen, you hang out within the losers of the ants, right? That's what Jesus was willing to do for us. One of the more surprising aspects of this genealogy, especially when you consider Jewish culture, is that we have women mentioned in this genealogy. Women, although in Jewish culture they were loved and respected far more than the Gentiles or the other surrounding cultures or pagan cultures, women were still below men. They were not allowed to give testimony in court. They were often treated as just a side piece within the home. Each morning Jewish men would pray and thank God saying, Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a Gentile. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a slave. And thank you, Lord, that I'm not a woman, right? I wonder how quickly before breakfast they get a slap in the back of the head, right? But Jesus' respect and love for women throughout the Gospels and Christianity and its influence on Western culture are the reasons why women are treated equally here in the United States. I encourage you, go to Africa, Go to the Middle East, go to many parts of Asia where there's very little Christian influence and see how women are treated there. This is in large part because of the love and respect that Jesus showed and demonstrated for women. And not only are women mentioned in this genealogy, but let us consider the four women mentioned and what they're known for. We have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and her who had been the wife of Uriah. This morning's Bible study is a great reason why we have the kids in kids' church and the adults in adults' church. You see, in Genesis 38, we're introduced to Tamar. And Tamar's first husband, his name is Ur. I don't know how many Tamars you know today or how many Urs you know today. But Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God striked him dead. Then his younger brother, named Onan, was to continue the lineage of his brother and give Tamar a son who could provide for her, protect her, and continue his lineage. However, Onan, knowing that the heir would not be his, only had sex with Tamar for his own pleasure, and then he emitted his seed and his semen on the ground instead of impregnating Tamar. This displeased God to the point where God struck Onan dead as well. Ur and Onan's father, Judah, still needed to provide a son and a replacement to continue their, his son's lineage with Tamar. He had one last son. However, after seeing the death of his first two sons and their relationship with this woman, gives her the runaround and fails to provide another man for her. Later on, Judah's wife would pass away, and then Tamar, knowing her father-in-law, knowing the runaround he is giving her, and knowing the lifestyle of her father-in-law, disguises herself as a prostitute 
and waits at a nearby road where she knows Judah would come across. Shortly thereafter, Judah sees her and asks to come into her. Judah doesn't have the proper payment on him, so he leaves his signet ring and his staff as an IOU with Tamar, who's disguised as a prostitute. Later on, Judah's servants would return to pay the IOU to the same place where Judah was with this prostitute, only to find that there's no prostitute who works in this area within the city. Three months later, Judah finds out that his late son's wife, Tamar, is pregnant, and he's angry. He wants to put her to death for her harlotry. And when she's brought out for judgment, she brings with her the signet ring and the staff of the father of the baby in her belly. And there we probably get the moment where the, someone was the biggest red, right, in all of Scripture, or someone perhaps fainted, or the biggest got you moment in all of Scripture, right? Judah is convicted, lets her live, but never has intimacy with her ever again. To make the story even crazier, Tamar is not only pregnant with Judah's son, but she's pregnant with twins, which is where we get Perez and Zerah in the lineage of Jesus. So this is the first woman mentioned here. The next woman mentioned is Rahab. And as we say, Jesus Christ, right? Jesus, he's known for being the Christ. Rahab is known as Rahab, the prostitute. In Joshua chapter 2, there are two spies sent into Jericho to spy out the land. They end up staying at the house of a harlot named Rahab, which was more than likely a brothel. I always wonder how they explain this to their wives when they got back. But that's a separate teaching, right? Rahab shows extreme trust and faith in the God of the Israelites. In Joshua chapter 2 verse 11, she's speaking with the two spies and she tells them, As soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house. And give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. Rahab would go on to go to great lengths to protect the two spies and hide them within her home. Rahab, a Gentile prostitute, because of her faith and trust in just the stories she heard of the God of the Israelites, and asking these two spies is able to save not only her own life, but the life of her entire family from the total destruction and annihilation of Jericho. Again, Jericho was completely destroyed and annihilated. In Israel's journey throughout the wilderness, God would allow them to keep some of the goods, some of the gold, some of the silver, some of the animals. But when Jericho, when they fought Jericho, God had them completely annihilate and obliterate and burn everything to a crisp. The third woman is Ruth. And when we think of Ruth, we always think of love stories, right? Think of Ruth and Boaz, ay que lindo, love story, right? But Ruth was not only a Gentile, she was a Moabite. 
And Moabites were a tribe from the incestuous relationship of Lot with his oldest daughter after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's daughter was afraid that the earth was going to be destroyed, so she got her father drunk and had sex with him. And this is where we get the tribe of the Moabites. Later on, during Israel's wanderings through the wilderness, the Moabite king Balak would bring Balaam the prophet into interview him and ask him to prophesy against Israel. Unable to prophesy against God's people, Balaam encourages Balak to tempt the nation of Israel to sin by sending the young Moabite women into the camps of the Israelites to have sexual relationships with them and to cause them to worship their gods and their idols. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, we see how God has the nation of Israel treat the Moabites. He tells them, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. They were excommunicated from the tabernacle, if you would. Never allowed to enter in and worship God until ten generations had passed. Last but not least, we have the woman that Matthew calls her who had been the wife of Uriah. This is none other than Bathsheba, right? Don't know too many Tamars, too many Bathshebas, right? Too many Rahabs. And Bathsheba is the woman famous for her adulterous relationship with King David, being unfaithful to her own husband Uriah. And her character looks even worse when her husband Uriah comes back from war and David tries to get him to sleep at home, hoping that he'll have sex with his wife to cover the baby that Bathsheba's pregnant with. Uriah is faithful to his God, to his king, and to his fellow brothers in war, so Uriah stays faithful and doesn't go home. Even though David gets him to get drunk, he still doesn't get home. Later on, Uriah would be murdered in a cover-up attempt by David. And this is the group of women that Jesus decides his lineage would be a part of. Sometimes we talk to our kids and say, hey, God chose for you to be my son. God chose for you to be my daughter. Now imagine if you would, you could choose your lineage and your pedigree. Would you choose such a group of people? If we're honest, many of us would be make the decision and we'd be born into money, right? We would be Elon Musk Jr. That's who we would be if we had any choice in the matter, right? Bill Gates Jr. We'd be born into money. Perhaps power's your thing and you would want to be born and you'd be the next king or queen of England. You'd want to be in the royal family. Maybe what you desire is incredible genetics, right? And you'd be LeBron James' son or whoever your favorite athlete is, right? You'd be Usain Bolt's son or daughter, right? Jesus, having the power and the ability to choose what lineage and pedigree he would be born into, chose a group of Gentiles, sinners, liars, adulterers, prostitutes, murderers, and those who are not allowed in the assembly of God. What great humility and love does the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah have for the world. F.B. Meyer says, Men and women 
notorious for their evil character, lie in the direct line of his descent. This was permitted that he might fully represent our fallen race. Charles Spurgeon says he is akin to the fallen and to the lowly, and he will show his love even to the poorest and most obscure. You see, our great Savior, Jesus, came into this world being fully God. That's why we have to believe in the virgin birth. He is born fully God. However, he was also born fully man, willing to identify and save everyone and anyone that's willing to humble themselves and cry out to him. Jesus, he didn't only identify with the holy people or the religious people, or the people we would declare as good or noble. Jesus was willing to be a part of a lineage of the worst of the worst to show that he is more than willing to save the worst of the worst. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it tells us he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, no matter what sins you've committed, Jesus, he wants to save you. He wants to free you. He wants to have that relationship and that love and that fellowship with you. He is able to save to the uttermost. That means that Jesus is able to save now until the end of time and until forever the worst of the worst. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it tells us, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, fully man. Jesus can sympathize with every single one of your weaknesses, your trials, your temptations, and the difficulties in life. And yet, he came out perfect and sinless. All we need to do is come boldly to him, asking for mercy, asking for grace, and asking for help. Again, Jesus wasn't born in a castle. He wasn't born to a king. He wasn't born in a beautiful home. He was born in a borrowed barn or cave with animals that didn't belong to his parents. Jesus can sympathize with us when we can't afford a new mattress and we keep waking up with back pain, right? He can sympathize with all of those pains, those ailments. He can sympathize with not having a ton of money or wealth. He can sympathize with those who are homeless and don't have a home. He can sympathize through all the weaknesses of humanity, and yet he came out perfect. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17 tells us that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I encourage you, Take a step back today and look at this past year. Look at all of your life and try to comprehend the love of Jesus Christ for you. How much he's loved you. 
how he died for you, how he humbled himself for you, how he took on my sin, my wages of my sin. He took my punishment. Take a step back and wait and say, Lord, help me to understand how great your love is for me. Ephesians 3 verse 20 continues, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The only way we can scratch the surface to think of all the plans that God has for us, all that God can do in us, is to take a step back and consider the depths of the love that Jesus has for us. Let's turn to Mark chapter 2. Praise the Lord. Mark chapter 2, let's turn there. And we'll see just the type of Messiah, the type of Savior that Jesus is. Mark chapter 2, verse 16. It tells us, and when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Again, one of the women washing the feet of Jesus, the priests, the scribes, they would say, if he only knew what manner of woman this was, he wouldn't allow her to touch him. And the Pharisees constantly were looking down on Jesus and his willing to identify and fellowship with tax collectors and with sinners. And yet what we see here is Jesus, he didn't just hang out with them to spend time with them. He didn't hang out with them to be like them or act like them. He spent time with sinners and tax collectors in order to call them to repentance. And the two great convictions, the two great things I believe we should do after this morning's study is first consider the great love Jesus Christ has for us and for us to run to him. And then also consider... Do I think I'm too self-righteous to spend time with sinners? Because if we're honest, that quickly creeps into our heart. We quickly become like the Pharisees looking down on other Christians. Are you really spending time with so-and-so and so-and-so? Are you really with those types of people? Now, we have to have the great balance because Jesus didn't just spend time with them to act like them. Jesus wasn't there with the sinners and he started telling dirty jokes with them. Jesus didn't start slamming down shots with them to be like them and to sympathize with them. He spent time with them to demonstrate his great love towards them. And he spent time with them to demonstrate and to tell them, hey, you need to repent. You need to come to me. We looked at all the insane men and women within this lineage. But after they come to Jesus Christ, we don't see them living and acting the same way. And even David, in his great sin, his great sin comes at a great cost. Not only to him, not only to Bathsheba, but to the baby, to his sons, to his daughters, and even to the whole nation of Israel. 
In Luke chapter 15, verse 1 through 7, another interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and the tax collectors and sinners. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1 through 7, it tells us then all the tax collectors, right? Maybe this was Matthew's group of friends, right? And they're all headed towards Jesus. All the tax collectors, all the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Again, this is the heart of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Chosen One, Jesus the Savior of the world. His desire is to save people. His desire is for mankind to repent and come to him. Repent and come to him as the doctor, as the great physician. So for Jewish readers, I'm sure they would be in awe that Jesus was really a part of the genealogy of the chosen one, of the anointed one, and of the Messiah. But I believe we should be blown away by that, but we should also be blown away at the fact that he is not surprised by our sins. He's not surprised by our sins, but he loves us far too much to leave us there dead in our sins. Right? As, as we looked at this lineage, it also seems like, it seems like it's an episode of Jerry Springer, if we're honest, right? Tamar, Judah, this girl's pretending to be a prostitute and sleeps with her father-in-law. What in the world is going on here, right? This is the lineage of Jesus Christ. And yet, he's a part of all of it. He doesn't just leave them there, but he calls them to repentance. Jesus is not surprised by your sins. He wants to save you. All we have to do is repent and come to him. That word repentance is to feel the sorrow for our sins and then choose to do what is right. And I think that's such a healthy exercise for us to take a step back and consider all the pain and all the agony our sins have brought, not only to our own lives, but to our parents to our spouses, to our kids, to the people we interacted with in high school or in college, those people at work, those people we robbed from, those people that we stole from, those people that we hurt, we should take a step back and feel the sorrow of our sins. We could take a step back and sense the wages of our sin, which is death. And we shouldn't just stay there. Some people just stay there. The devil, he just wants you to stay there. To stay there with all the weight of it. No, we should sense all that sorrow and then run to Jesus Christ even harder. Don't sense that sorrow and then all of a sudden create self-righteousness in your heart trying to dumb down that sorrow. Many people do that. Oh, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Yeah, I feel bad about my past, but at least I'm not as bad as X, Y, or Z. Family, we need to run to Jesus Christ. We need to be those that press into him, that cry out to that throne of grace, asking for mercy, grace, 
and help. We need to be the poor and needy that cry out to him with our empty cups and we come to the fountain of living water desiring a cup from him. So two great questions. Are we repenting and coming to Jesus Christ and do we think we are too good to love on and to reach out to sinners? Do we think that we are more righteous than Jesus Christ was? Because it's just an absolute lie. We need to accept this incredible display of humility and love that Jesus has shown to purchase my life and to purchase your life and adopt us as sons and daughters. So are we feeling and sensing that sorrow and then making the correct action? That's why I challenge you to do this afternoon. Take a step back, sense that sorrow, and then make the correct and the biblical action. Perhaps you've been sticking your nose up at people who are sinners, people who are not believers. Show a little bit more humility. Show love, show grace. Be the light there. Right? The great balance of Scripture says if you have a bunch of Christians that are acting like a bunch of unbelievers, but say that they're Christians, don't spend any time with them, right? Don't eat with them. However, for the ungodly, for the unbeliever, we should be there not to act like them, but to demonstrate the love and the humility of Jesus Christ. That they would want to hear what you and I have to say, talking about the Savior of all humanity. So hey, let's go ahead and pray. Worship team, if you can come up. Pastors, if you could come up. And uh, we'll close in prayer and in worship. So Lord, we, we thank you, Lord. Just thank you for... Lord, the love that you've demonstrated towards us, Lord. The incredible humility that you've shown, God. And Lord, I pray that you'd please, Lord, forgive me for my self-righteousness, for my pride, for thinking I'm better than anyone else, Lord. Free me from that, God. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, through that deceitful heart, Lord, through the blindness of our eyes, Lord, to just sense the wages of our sin, Lord. To consider the pain and the agony that you went through to save me. To consider the great demonstration of love that God, you've sent your only begotten son to take our place and to die on our behalf and to pay the wages for our sins so that we could have life, so that we could be adopted into this incredible family, Lord. And Lord, if anyone is here and they're that lost lamb, Pray that they'd cry out to you, that they'd run to that throne of grace asking you for help. And Lord, if there are any of us that we've just been going down the path of sin, we're going down the path of that prodigal living, Lord, I pray we would do the same. That we'd humble ourselves and cry out to our Father in heaven. So Lord, we just love you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this day, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's all stand. We'll close in worship. If you need prayer, there'll be pastors up front.